I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the Gospel of John. Our text is John chapter 10. Who's your leader? Who defines for you the purpose of your life? Who do you go to for direction? Whose authority do you recognize in ordering your life? From whom do you ask permission before executing any major decision? If the answer is no one, then you're your own shepherd. Who do you follow? Who's your leader? True and good leadership is the topic of John chapter 10. John 10 presents the very well-known metaphors surrounding two famous I am statements from Jesus. I am the door of the sheep and I am the good shepherd. This teaching is delivered in the context of a larger section as the completion of that section. So stepping back to take a broad look, we see that we've come to the end of the second major section of John, chapters 5 through 10, in which Jesus challenges the darkness, and the darkness resists. There was misunderstanding of Jesus in chapters 1 through 4, but not much opposition and no talk of killing him. Resistance has steadily increased, intensified in chapters 5 through 10. At the center of the section, we heard the testimony of Peter. You have the words of eternal life, and we believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. If that testimony is the literary center of the section, then flanked on either side are two feasts, the Passover in chapter 6 and the Feast of Booths in chapters 7 and 8. The first contained the declaration, I am the bread of life. The second contained the declaration, I am the light of the world. The Passover feast ended with a group of disciples who believed without believing and were pushed back by Jesus with the faith test, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And then similarly, the Feast of Booths ended with another group that believed without believing and were pushed back as Jesus drilled down into their self-identity. The group of false disciples at the Passover deserted Jesus. The group of false believers at the Feast of Booths picked up stones to kill him. So we have two dialogues ending with rejection of Jesus, flanking the testimony of Peter who holds on to Jesus. Then if we move further out in the section on either side, we have two Sabbath healings that bring about the anger of Jewish leaders and provide opportunity for significant teaching from Jesus about himself. At the beginning, this content is in chapter 5, and then at the end, it's in chapters 9 through 10. There are three parallel divisions in each of those two sections. In chapter 5, first, Jesus heals a lame man on the Sabbath, bringing about the anger of Jewish leaders. Then Jesus teaches us about himself. Then Jesus calls witnesses to support his claims. That same pattern follows here in chapters 9 through 10. First, Jesus heals a blind man on the Sabbath, bringing about the anger of Jewish leaders. Then Jesus teaches us about himself. Then Jesus calls witnesses to support his claims. In chapter 5, Jesus taught us that he has power over life and has authority to judge. In chapter 10, he builds on that teaching. He again asserts his power over life and his authority, though his authority takes on a more personal tone. He is the leader we know and trust. He is king on high, but he's also the shepherd with us on the ground. He calls his sheep and they hear his voice and they follow him. Of the three divisions that parallel that chapter 5, healing, teaching, and witnesses, 
we addressed the healing of the blind man already in our last lesson. That was chapter 9. So now we continue on with the two parts of this lesson. First, Jesus teaching about himself as our true leader. That's verses 1 to 21. And then a call to witnesses in verses 22 to 42. Jesus is our true leader. Let's read John 10, 1 through 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? This text divides into four paragraphs. The first is verses 1 through 6. This is where Jesus delivers the basic metaphor. There are four players in the metaphor. There's a thief, a shepherd, a doorkeeper, and sheep. The thief and the shepherd each relate differently to the doorkeeper and differently to the sheep. The thief must avoid the doorkeeper because he has no legitimate right to enter. He climbs over the barrier at some other point. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. And the sheep will not follow this thief because they have no relationship to him. A stranger they simply will not follow but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. On the other hand, the doorkeeper opens the gate for the shepherd who's recognized as having legitimate authority over the sheep. And when the sheep hear his voice, they respond because they know him and trust him. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. 
My Croatian friend Dienzi says his grandfather gave each sheep a name. He remembers one called Yabuka, which is apple. When his grandfather called the sheep, they didn't even look up. He'd call each one by name, and heads down, they just start walking after him at the call of his voice. Dienzi tried to call the sheep, you know, when he was a boy, Yabuko, Yabuko, but they uh, completely ignored him and just kept on eating grass. He's not the shepherd. They don't know him. Jesus has made clear that the primary issue of faith is the state of the human heart. Something has to be turned on inside of a person before they will follow after Jesus. But once it has been turned on, that person will indeed follow. Jesus declared in 665, No one can come to me unless it has been granted from the Father. And later in 847, He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. Seeing Jesus, hearing Jesus, these are senses a human being does not possess in his or her original state. Like the blind man at the beginning of chapter 9, we're born without sight. We cannot see the light unless the light of the world opens the eyes of our hearts. We can also compare it to sound. We're born deaf, unable to hear the word. But when he does unstop our ears, then we become his. We hear his voice and we respond. We respond because we've begun to know him and we trust him. People in the gathered crowd are confused by Jesus' metaphor. Verse 6 reports, they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus decides to expand on elements in the original metaphor. This is not so much an extension of the same metaphor, but more of an expansion on three key ideas, the door, the shepherd, and the sheep. So let's look at the expansion of the idea of the door, and this is verses 7 to 10. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. We find out that Jesus is too big for the metaphor. You not, not only is he the shepherd who leads the sheep, he's also the door by which the sheep enter into the kingdom of God. The sheep are saved through him. Now, I've heard the door here compared to a shepherd out in the country overnight who uses an enclosure made of stone just picked up out of the field or or an enclosure of thorn bushes, uh, and neither one has a, a set gate across the entryway. So the shepherd lays himself down across the entrance. He becomes the door. It prevents sheep from leaving at night or predators from entering. The idea in Jesus' metaphor goes even further than that. Jesus is the entryway to salvation. Psalm 23 helps us imagine the goodness that our shepherd desires to lead us into. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Jesus is the shepherd who restores the soul and guides us in righteousness, who gives us purpose. How do we enter into that goodness? And can Jesus simply call us and lead us into it? No, if he led, we could not follow him. We are not fit for heaven. We've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We cannot enter into perfect righteousness. We have no place in the kingdom of God. 
We cannot follow him in. The angel of wrath blocks the way back into the garden. But by dying for us, Jesus becomes the portal through which we can enter into the holy place of God. Because we enter into his righteousness when we place our faith in him. We stand in his grace. And in in this way, he is our entryway. And what we find when we enter is life that is more than life, or more than biological life. A life cut off from a relationship with God is not real life. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life, abundant life. But there is one who tries to bar the way to life, jealous of Adam and Eve and bearing a bitter grudge against the one who made him. Satan entered the garden to destroy the life God gives. He's a deceiver. He's a murderer. He hates the idea of life under the loving sovereignty of God. He continues to work against mankind to steal and to kill and to destroy in opposition of the work of Jesus Christ. And anyone who opposes Jesus Christ participates knowingly, unknowingly, willingly, unwillingly in the work of Satan to kill, to steal, to destroy, to block life. Jesus is not speaking abstractly about good shepherds and bad shepherds. His words are an indictment of false spiritual leaders, beginning with those present around him, those present in the story in chapter 9. Chapter 9 is a concrete example of what Jesus is saying. The blind man is one of the sheep of Israel. But as a sheep of Israel, he had lived as an outcast beggar under the rule of false shepherds. The true shepherd came to him and opened his eyes. The true shepherd saw him and cared about him. But the false shepherds reject that true shepherd, and they speak lies about him. And when this poor sheep stood up for the true shepherd, he was reviled, and he himself was cast out. But the true shepherd sought the lost sheep. He came to him and spoke to him, and that sheep heard his voice and followed him. Finally, the true shepherd denounced the blindness of the false shepherds, telling them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. The leaders of Israel, knowing or unknowingly, are doing the work of Satan. They destroy through deception. They care most about their own positions of authority. They are not concerned, not truly, for the spiritual health of the flock under their care. They are concerned with maintaining their religion. They are not concerned with spiritual truth. Here Jesus has expanded the idea of the door. In the next paragraph, he expands the idea of the shepherd. And this is going to come in two parts. The first is in verses 11 to 13. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Jesus is not just the shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. And in his goodness, he deeply loves his sheep. It's a revolutionary concept for leadership. If you are a leader, do you love your people? Sheep are not expendable for Jesus. Sheep are not stepping blocks for his own agenda. Sheep are not the lesser unworthy masses that exist for the benefit or aggrandizement of elite leaders. 
the agenda of the good shepherd involves the protection and care of the sheep. He loves the sheep. He wants the sheep to experience life. He's willing to die for the sheep. The hired hand is the contrast. He's not concerned about the sheep at all. This is not the first appearance of this contrast between good and wicked shepherds in the Bible. Jesus' teaching alludes to the shepherd prophecies in Ezekiel and Zechariah, both of which are messianic. So listen to this. This is Ezekiel 34, 1-4 and 22-23. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel! who've been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. That's a wicked leader. Therefore, I will deliver my flock, and they will no longer be a prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. Zechariah brings out even more messianic prophecy around a metaphor of shepherd and ties into the Feast of Booths passage we've already noted as background for chapter 7 and 8 with its light and its water streaming out of Jerusalem. So follow this. I'm going to read five short passages, Messianic passages from Zechariah, starting in 11, 4 to 5. Thus says the Lord my God, pastor the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slay them and go unpunished. And each of those who sell them says, blessed be the Lord, for I've become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. Next, Zechariah eleven twelve to 13. I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out thirty shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the thirty shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Zechariah 12.10 I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly, over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Then Zechariah 13.7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Then finally, Zechariah 14.7-9, For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light, And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea and the other half towards the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter, and the Lord will be king over the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. For those who had ears to hear in the audience, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and then you go back into Ezekiel and back into Zechariah and you see the the wicked shepherds are the leaders of Israel, but there's going to rise up a good shepherd, but he's going to suffer. He's going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He's going to be pierced, and his his little ones are going to be scattered. But in the end day, he is going to be king who reigns in light, and a river of life will flow from Jerusalem. You know, if they could hear that, uh, 
Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah, but they have to, they have to hear. Jesus continues his elaboration on the idea of shepherd in verses 14 to 18. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Jesus repeats here that those who hear his voice and respond, those are his. This is a spiritual reality. And it's not just true of Israelites. There are sheep outside of Israel. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. That lesson's not really going to sink in for the disciples until after the resurrection, after Pentecost, and after the church begins to grow. But it's not going to stop in Israel. It's going to go beyond, because there are sheep out there who need to hear the voice of Jesus. There are still sheep all over the world who need somebody to proclaim the good news. And when they hear it, they're going to respond. Describing the relationship between shepherd and sheep, Jesus makes a comparison to his own relationship with the Father. It's not an absolute parallel. Jesus' relationship with the Father is fundamentally different than our relationship with Jesus because Jesus and the Father are equally God. Still, there are ways in which the relationship is similar. There's a personal love relationship between Father and Son. There's also a personal love relationship between us and Christ. Even if there's as much difference between him and us as sheep and a shepherd, and there's still this personal knowledge of knowing of names and involves a knowing of one another. Jesus knows us, and we can come to know him. The relationship is also similar in the sense of obedience. The son obeys the father, and we obey the son. He is our shepherd king. There's something of this in verse 17, and I don't believe that verse 17 means that God loves Jesus only as a result of his obedience. You know, Jesus must obey first, and then the Father loves him. That's, that could sound like that, but that's not the idea. The Father loves who the Son is, and who he is is the one who lays down his life. The Father loves this loving obedience that is part of the nature of the Son, this unconditional love for the sheep that is part of his being. That's who he is. That's what's meant by verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. And the obedience of the Son to lovingly lay down his life is the glory of his nature, and the Father loves that nature. Another truth stands out. This is kind of striking in this passage. I'm not sure where else it's expressed. You know, we tend to think about the resurrection of Jesus as the act of the Father. That's what the Father does. He raises Jesus from the dead. But John emphasizes the reality of equality in Father and Son. Regarding his life, Jesus declares, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. No one kills Jesus without the authority 
of Jesus. Jesus has to willingly submit. And Jesus himself has authority to raise himself back up again. And that strong language, that that claim leads to the response of the gathered crowd, and it finds mixed reviews. This is verses 19 to 21. A division again occurred among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon can't open the eyes of the blind, can he? The charge, he has a demon and is insane, reminds me of the Lord Liar Lunatic argument we borrowed from C.S. Lewis for the parallel lesson back in chapter 5. Now, who is this Jesus? What kind of person makes such claims? This crowd recognizes that Jesus doesn't leave them with the option of calling him a good moral teacher. Good people don't say this sort of thing. He claims to be the door of salvation for all people. You cannot enter heaven unless you go through him. You know, what good person says that? He claims to be a good shepherd, not only over Israel, but beyond. You know, he has this grandiose opinion of his authority. What good person says that? And now he claims that he has power over his own life and his own death. What kind of man makes such claims? A demonic man who willingly deceives people, manipulates? Or an insane man who knows no better, he really thinks it's true, but it's not? Or the Lord of heaven, whose claims are true? These people understood the claims Jesus was making. And they recognize he's done great miracles, and so now they're struggling to come to grips with it all. Jesus has taught about himself. We had a sign of the healing of the blind man. Do you see the sign? Are you able to read it? Jesus helps us. He teaches us now about who he is. Who is the one who can heal the blind? He's the good shepherd. He's the door of the sheep. He's the one who has authority to lay down his life and take it up again. They're not going to believe him. And so in the next section, Jesus calls again witnesses to support his claims. So let's read through that whole text. This is John 10, 22 to 42. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, 
You are blaspheming because I said I am a son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. We cover a few months' time between verse 21 and 22. John has moved us forward to another feast. He is taking teaching from that later feast to complete the parallel with chapter 5 to give us a call to witnesses here. And we know Jesus told other parables about shepherds and sheep not included in John's gospel. So it's not surprising that Jesus taught again on this same theme at a later feast, and then John has just brought the two together. That feast of dedication is not an Old Testament feast. In 167 BC, the Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes IV, a uh, really bad guy, set up a pagan altar in the temple of God in Jerusalem, and he sacrificed a pig on it to Zeus. Judas Maccabees, also known as the Hammer, led forces to retake the temple three years later, and it was cleansed and rededicated after those three years of defilement. This feast celebrates that cleansing, the the dedication of the temple. And you've probably heard of it by another name, by the name of Hanukkah or Feast of Lights. And because of the lighting of the lights and the joyfulness of the occasion, it was also referred to as a Feast of Booths in the month of Kislev. That's 2 Maccabees 1.9. And so it, it fits in with our whole Feast of Booths context and with the, the content. John just brings it all nicely together here. The reference in verse 36 to Jesus as the one whom God sanctified and sent into the world may also be John's way of indicating that this feast, too, finds fulfillment in Jesus. As the temple was sanctified anew, Jesus is the one who is sanctified. The temple was a shadow pointing to the reality of Jesus. You know, if we study what the tabernacle, and then later the temple are all about. It's it's constant symbolism about Jesus. And in that sense, the sanctification of the temple also points to the sanctification of the Son. But the Son was set apart, sanctified, declared holy for his saving work since the creation of the world. Now, that was the plan, that he would come. And so this the Son fulfills um, this idea of the the sanctification of the temple because he himself is the temple or he himself is the dwelling of God's glory on earth. So I don't know. There may be a, a connection there, or he's just telling us what time of year it is. It's the Feast of Dedication. Now, before we get to the witnesses, we, we're going to expand. There's one more idea. We expanded on the metaphor um, with the idea of the door And then the idea of the shepherd. Jesus is going to give us a little more now about the idea of the sheep. So listen to these truce claims. This is in verses 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice. Okay, so that's the mark of true belief. They're the ones who hear Jesus. And I know them. The sheep share this personal relationship with Jesus. And they follow me. So true hearing implies following. The sheep hear, they trust, and they start walking behind Jesus. And I give eternal life to them. To know Jesus, to truly hear him and believe, is to experience eternal life as a gift from him. And they will never perish. Eternal life is, in fact, eternal. 
if you have eternal life, you will never perish. And it doesn't mean that the sheep will not die a physical death, but it means they will die no spiritual death. They will live forever in the new heaven and the new earth with God. And finally, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And we might understand from the previous promise, they will never perish, that the sheep have eternal security. But just so we're sure about this, Jesus makes this explicit promise. And it ties in with promises he made back in chapter 6. You know, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all of that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Jesus adds here to those promises. It's building on the same idea. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Why not? Because my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You can play that game that you might play with a little kid, and you hide a ball in your hand and close your fist and let them try to pry open your fingers. Nobody can do that to God unless he lets you. God's God's hand is firm, and if he says nobody can snatch you out, nobody can snatch you out. I recognize there's disagreement in the Christian world about whether or not a true believer can lose their salvation. I believe Jesus teaches here in John that they can't. I believe this teaching is strongly affirmed in the theology of the Christian life taught by Paul. And since Paul develops the idea of eternal security more uh, thoroughly in Romans 5-8, through and since I've addressed that teaching in my Romans podcast, I'll just say a few words about something here, an argument that I hear that bothers me. So I'll I'll not develop the whole whole argument here. If you want my argument, you'd have to go back and listen to Romans 5 through 8. But there's something I hear that people say, and it it ultimately denies an essential aspect of the gospel. And this is the problematic argument in a simplified form. People say, since we have free will to enter into relationship with God, we also have free will to leave. And I think, Hmm, that, well, that sounds nice, but, but it's really false. And there, there are times when we make a free will choice that we're free to then back out of the choice. But there are times when we are not free to back out of the choice. It's not that simple. And salvation is one of those times. It is wrong to understand salvation as merely the entering into a covenant with another person. You know, the marriage relationship works to help us understand our salvation, that we say yes to God. You, you say, I do. You, you have to make that decision of the will, the volitional moment. But it's more than just a covenant, um, more than just a marriage. Something happens. So that's part of the truth. It's just not the whole truth. So along to bringing us into covenant relationship with God based on grace, saving faith changes who we are as human beings. The New Covenant believer has not just made a decision without any change. The New Covenant believer experiences a spiritual regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Being born again is a true spiritual reality. It's not just a fiction of the mind. We're not just saying, oh, I'm born again because I've made a decision. No, when you made the decision, something happened to you, and you are born again. And even if it is the human will that initiates the experience of being born again, which I don't 
think it is. I don't think that's what we learn in John, since no one can come unless the Father grants it. I think God has to do something in us. But even if we say that, if we say the human will is the decisive factor, we are often able to make decisions that cannot be undone. It is possible that we make a free will decision that you can't then change. Becoming pregnant, for example, you know, that is a reality entered into by the human will that creates an immortal life, that a life that will live forever in death or live forever in life. And once that new life has been conceived, that reality cannot be undone by your will. You may have willfully entered into it. You cannot change it once it's done, once life exists. You can try to ignore it or erase it or, or unthink it, but you will not be able to. There is a new life. So also with new birth, once you place your faith in Jesus Christ, truly, you are born again of his spirit. And it is not at all clear that you have any ability in your will to undo that new birth. And now you may disagree with me, and that, that's fine. You may believe that it's possible for the spiritual regeneration of new birth to be undone. That's a longer conversation. But I do hope, and I encourage Christians to stop using the argument that just as we are free to enter into relationship with God, we are free also to leave relationship with God. You know, such an argument ignores the reality of the new birth by not addressing the fact that something transformative happens when a person truly believes. It is no longer simply a matter of the human will. Okay, back to our text. I believe Jesus is teaching here that once you step into his grace, not only are all of your sins forgiven so that there is now no condemnation, but you are also irretrievably taken into the care of God. And even if you try to walk away from Jesus, the Spirit in you will continue to cry out, Abba, Father, and Abba, Father, will never let you go. No one, not anything, is strong enough to snatch you out of his hand, not even you. To sum up the teaching here about the sheep, true belief brings about a spiritual response. The ears of the heart are open. If you truly believe, that is a description of what's happened to you. You heard the voice of Jesus. You discovered that he knows you, and you followed after him. He has given you eternal life. You will not perish. You are held tight in the Father's hand. Not only does the Father hold on to you, but so does Jesus. Because they're one. In verse 30, he reminds us, I and the Father are one. But that reminder is enough to incense the crowds, and they pick up stones to stone Jesus. And so Jesus calls again on witnesses. We considered the witnesses more in depth in chapter 5, so I'm just going to point them out here to finish out this text. First, Jesus calls on his works as witness. I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The people retort, It's not because of your works. It's because of your blasphemous identification with God. Jesus then calls on the witness of Scripture, quoting from Psalm 82.6. It's a tricky quote. Jesus is not here providing an argument for his own divinity. He seems to be stalling the crowd in their anger and challenging them to go deeper, if indeed they can hear with spiritual ears. So the quote from Psalm 82.6 is an example of the Bible applying the term gods to Israelites. So it says, if your own word calls people gods, then what problem do you have with me calling myself son of God? But the, the text is a poetic sense. It more literally probably means like gods. But it's enough here to force Jesus' opponents to pause 
and to have to consider his claim as equality with God. And Jesus is doing more than just causing them to pause. And the quote comes from context. And when Jesus quotes something, he's expecting us to look at, at what's around, what's the rest of Psalm 82. And he's, he's taking them there. He's, he's, he is playing a bit with them when he says this. He's, he's challenging them to stop and think. But if they were to go back and follow up and to look at the psalm, they would see that it's a rebuke to Israel. In fact, the verse not quoted right before the one Jesus does quote charges, they will walk around in darkness. That's a major theme of John. Jesus has come to his own his own walk in darkness and want to shut him out. And that's what the psalm says. And it's right there if they would just stop and think about it. The quote goes on like this, verse 6, which he quoted, I said you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. And there's irony here as, as a a nation called to walk in relationship with Yahweh, they are in a sense like gods. They are in a sense the sons of the Most High. You're not the sense that Jesus is, but in a, in another sense. But because they walk in darkness, they are going to die like men, and we could say like mere men. You know, you are as the gods, but you are your result is going to be as though you're no more than a than a physical man. So on the one hand, this is a rebuke of the crowd, but then on the other hand, it raises the question, what, what then does Jesus mean when he calls himself a son of the Father, a son of the Most High? Have we been misunderstanding him? No. What's he been quoting? The shepherd metaphors. He's, he's bringing out Ezekiel. He's bringing out Zechariah. Look at his works. He's doing the works of the, the Messiah. But Jesus is not going to entrust himself to this crowd. So he, he gives them some confusing word, and, and only if they have ears to hear, only if they're willing to listen and pay attention, then they'll understand what he's talking about. Third, Jesus' reference in verse 36 to the Father sanctifying and sending the Son can be taken as a call on the Father as witness. Now, this whole passage, is, you see, is not as direct a call of witnesses as in chapter 5, 31 to 47, but the presence of the same four elements are here, the same four witnesses of works, word, Father, and even John the Baptist provides a very nice literary balance to the end of our this major section in the Gospel of John. So fourth, we, we get to John the Baptist as we re- read from the very end of the chapter, the final verses, 38 to 41. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Jesus' words did not remove the hostility of the crowd in the temple. They still want to kill him. Jesus' light shines in the darkness. He is the true shepherd. He is the true authority. But the darkness in the hearts of men and women hates the light that Jesus brings. So Jesus leaves Jerusalem, and he goes back out to where his ministry began, out past the Jordan where John was baptizing. And then the passage ends with verse 42, and many believed in him there. And now Jesus will not return to Jerusalem again until the hour of his glory is at hand. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, 
Or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of the Gospel of John, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.